Wom and Jekka, everyone, and welcome to M Pavilion. I think we're just beginning to get the cool change. Uh, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, uh, the Bunurong people, and acknowledge any elders past, present, and to the future, and any Aboriginal people who are here present tonight. Um, I am Jessie French, I'm the associate producer of M Pavilion, and we have been working on this event with, with Rachel, which is special because she actually is part of our family. She. Um, worked at M Pavilion since before the launch and then moved over to Assemble Papers, but we still work with Assemble Papers on a joint issue every year um, and we're still great friends with Rachel. So, <laughs> um, We began this talk tonight by speaking with the Flory and, and Julie at the Flory about what we could do for a talk and the science of well-being and the architecture of how people respond to spaces on a, on a neuroscience level in the brain um, was the beginning of that discussion. And then we decided to bring in Assemble Papers to help us piece together the rest of this panel. Um, so I'll hand you over to Rachel for a, a proper introduction and uh, enjoy tonight. Thank you, Jesse. Um, so my name is Rachel Elliott-Jones and I'm the creative producer of Assemble Papers. Um, Thank you so much to M Pavilion and to the Flurry for inviting us to be co-conspirators on this panel discussion. Um, we're thrilled as always to be here. Um, the topic tonight is very close to our hearts and top of our minds because um, earlier this year and to coincide with M Pavilion opening, we released our latest issue, which, was, which is themed the architecture of well-being. So we're really interested in this topic. We're particularly interested in exploring the scientific design um, and human sides to understanding space and our interconnectedness with it. So tonight we're really excited to be bringing together the unique perspectives of um, neuroscientists from the Flurry, Emma Burrows and Julie Bernhardt, and also um, Jonathan Daly from Studio House, whose practice is at the intersection of urbanism and environmental psychology. And who better to keep the conversation ticking along than Andrew McKenzie, the director of Euromedia, Euromedia Media, and longtime um, contributor to the conversation around architecture and design. So on that note, Andrew, I'll hand over to you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I, I start with a kind of like a, a, almost an apology. Uh, I uh, flew in from Hong Kong this morning at 7 and I had two hours sleep last night, so if someone has to kick me to wake me up, uh, please do. Um, it, it's a great pleasure to be here, um, and particularly on this subject, because having looked at the buildings that inhabit the, uh, the, the processes of well-being and looking after people who are sick for many years, it has occurred to me just how bad they largely are. They, <clears throat> they are probably amongst the worst type building in terms of fit for purpose, in architectural terms. I think you would probably agree. Um, and, uh, and yet, there is increasingly evidence that, demonstrable evidence, that the quality of a building and the space in which you get better in, for instance, um, is, is, is reliant so much on the architecture. Um, I'm reminded, or when I, when I was looking through the material and thinking about it, I was reminded of that rather famous quote of Winston Churchill, which is that uh, you, you, shape the, you shape your buildings and then after the buildings shape you. And in some ways, mm -hmm. this is a kind of corollary to the idea of what effect does the spaces of recovery and, and, and well-being have on the people in them. Now, mentioned uh, Churchill. Now, Julie, uh, you went on a Churchill Foundation uh, tour. That was my rather clunky segue. Um, and uh, in 2013, I believe, to look at uh, a bunch of other buildings around the world. 
and see what they were doing. Um, could we just kick off by a, a bit of a summary, about some thoughts on what you saw on your journeys, what was both perhaps uh, looking like exemplary things to look at and things that were definitely not to look at? Mm -hmm. That's a great, great start. So, <laughs> yes, I was lucky enough to travel for a month and visited Spain and Sweden and the US and uh, Finland and was looking at... Uh, Environmental enrichment, which will be a term that we'll come back to. So it's, a, it's a defined as ways in which we can change our environment to really have a, an enriching experience. Um, so in the environment uh, that I looked at, I was both trying to study health architecture, speak with health architects, because I'm not a health architect, I'm a neuroscientist and a clinician, and I work in hospitals, uh, and see if there were some really great examples. So what was really challenging was um, a lot of people would tell me about places I should go and see that were really bad examples. So I actually got to see a lot of places that I just went, oh, okay, right, so that's another hospital that looks actually very similar to any of the hospitals that we can point fingers at here. Um, and very few where they could show me examples of really fantastic uh, architecture. I think health architecture is at a point where, for uh, at a point where we're just starting to really make um, some progress. Uh, what I did see, though, in the US was uh, some really exciting stuff where a group of um, architects and designers and health um, uh, practitioners and consumers had started to design what they call the fable hospital, so the ideal uh, big acute hospital that would employ and integrate uh, best evidence from what we know about um, that can improve health. And they did this all on paper, like as a, a just an example of how, what might be possible. And since they did that, that was about 20 years ago, and it's now been built. So that to me was really exciting, that concept of start with, let's a fresh palette, and see what we come up with. And then s some people start to pick it up and, and actually build the, the building. It's interesting that, um, you know, if you take a leap back maybe a century or more, that it almost feels like at one point there was an understanding of the connection between recuperation and environment. What was it that changed? Maybe, I don't know, was it around the, the, the war years or something? What, what changed that turned it into this technocratic uh, environment that seemed to like didn't care where the, where the windows were. Maybe uh, Emma, could you uh, respond to that in terms of wh John, where do we go wrong? Jonathan. I think John might. Yeah, Jonathan? Where do we go wrong? <laughs> Otherwise, I'm happy to have a go, but it's up to you if you want to. Oh, well, look, I think, um, you know, what a lot of people maybe don't know is that um, a lot of this science, now not the neuroscience because it's, it's relatively new, um, but there's environmental psychology, for example. Um, the, the, the term was first coined in, in the, the 19th, um, late 19th century. It goes far back as then. Um, but in terms of an actual body of, of research and literature, it's been around for, um, you know, really started in, the, in, in the, the 60s and was very strong until kind of mid-80s. Um, and during that period, a lot of um, people in behavioral science were working very closely with designers and, and architects. And, um, we're not really sure exactly what happened um, in, in the mid-1980s that it, um, it, it fell apart. I think it's, the, the fault lies in, on both sides. Um, in terms of the researchers, I think what, what happened is that they just weren't that good at turning research into practical 
and usable knowledge in, 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 in private practice. And on, on the private practice side, um, maybe it was seen as um, a little bit of a threat. Um, and a possibly... Threat, a threat in what, in what sense? Well, a threat maybe to, 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 to some practices, to, um, for example, to the architect. That, um, you know, this idea of the master builder um, mm -hmm. having all that knowledge. Um, and at this point, was, we're looking at a more interdisciplinary type approach. Mm -hmm. um, Possibly combined with, of course, the, the, the spread and expansion of modernism, modernism's ethos, which had this kind of great equalizing and universalizing mm. impact and did effectively combine with the air conditioning to seal all our buildings off, really, mm. probably. Um, can you tell me, I mean, you, you probably have one of the most interesting CVs I've read in a while. Um, you are an uh, environmental psychologist and co-director of uh, an organization that does, does a research into practice exploring the relationship between people and the built environment. That's, that's potentially a very large, large field. Um, do you have a specific area in particular that you call your home? Yes, my, my area of interest is um, is the public realm. I, I'm, I'm really interested in, um, you know, mundane streets, just the everyday experience um, of the city. So th there's a lot more work going on um, in in terms of behavioural science, environment psychology, and and architecture than there is in, in terms of just public spaces. Mm -hmm. um, although interestingly, a lot of people probably have heard of uh, William H. White. And the social life of, of small spaces. I think a lot of architects and urban designers would be familiar with, with him. And you know that that was looking at public spaces. Mm -hmm. um, but you know as our cities develop and our cities get get denser, and Melbourne is facing this this issue. It's happening right now. It's not something happening in in, in the future. You know we we've got we've got a part of the CBD that's um, planned to have a higher density than Hong Kong. Um, thanks to to the former planning minister. Um, so just, just to prove anything and everything. But um, He's gone know, now, though. He is gone. Not nothing. <laughs> but we're not paying enough attention to how the buildings interact on, on the ground and with the street. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the street where we really experience the city on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so I think, it's, you know, I think it's going to be a really important area for the future. Right, right. And with ageing, I would have to say, you know, we know that our population's ageing. There is this real concern about how older people can actually engage and interact with space. And it's really challenging, I think, for them. And we also know from neuroscience that uh, if you're able to um, be out and be active, then the chance of you having um, problems with cognitive function, so with memory and deterioration in your mental cap capacity, is much lower. So mm -hmm. if you're active and outdoors and engaged, uh, that is absolutely essential for good brain health. And, uh, and yet it's sometimes very difficult for people to get out. Sure, sure. So, so both you and Emma are, are from the Fleury, and for those who don't know, uh, the area of expertise is neuroscience, effectively the brain. Um, I, I, I did a little bit of research earlier and, and, and looking up, for instance, the hippocampus, I was very interested to hear that what it, what it, what it computes, what it organizes in information around your short and long-term memory, but also your spatial intelligence and orientation. Uh, Emma, could you talk a little bit about that relationship, in a sense, between the, how the brain uh, relates to space and how that then you know, locks back to, to memory. 
you know, you, we just heard about the old people you know, responding to their spaces, and we're, we're beginning to realize that th there's a correlation here, quite a strong correlation. There's a, a very strong correlation. So one of the um, most interesting studies I've seen around the hippocampus in people, uh, they looked at taxi drivers in London, and mm -hmm. I'm sure some of you have stumbled across this study. So there's a really extremely difficult exam that taxi drivers need to sit, which involves memorising thousands, I think up to 5,000 different streets. The knowledge it's called. The That's knowledge, right. yeah. absolutely. And uh, you would think in the, the day of the GPS it doesn't matter, but maybe with Uber it's it's sort of phasing out. But even so, they, they looked at these taxi drivers and they found that those that passed the test actually had a larger hippocampi. And so this is the area of the brain that you mentioned. And it's actually a Latin word, and it comes from the word um, seahorse, because it's got a, a curly tail. It's right inside your brain, underneath all the folds. And that was such a, an, an interesting study, because it relates to my work um, in the rodent. And we know a lot more about the rodent hippocampus, because we're allowed to look at it. And one of the most fascinating things about a rodent navigating in space is that there is a single brain cell for a special spot that that rodent has been in. So if you get a rodent to travel along an S-shaped maze, every single time it gets to one bend, there are a collection of brain cells that will always activate in that particular bend. Wow. And they're called place cells. So wow. there are quite a lot of um, theories around human place cells. So what, what are our brains and what are our place cells doing when we navigate the streets of Melbourne? Um, these place cells are plastic. A lot of people have heard of the word neuroplasticity. It's a bit of a buzzword at the moment. But basically what it means is our, our brain's ability to change and be flexible with our environment. So maybe our place cells are flexible and plastic to the different experiences that we have in the CBD of Melbourne or in the countryside. And how do we best activate them? And do they relate to our health and our memory? So with that, I kind of want to, I suppose, cut straight to the chase in terms of what are the kind of qualities that we should be looking to in our buildings. Now, when you say about the relationship of the brain to understand place, mm. it tells me that the ancient um, architectural thing of sight lines and understanding orientation actually has a deep kind of psychological register. So presumably for our health buildings, that's one thing we should look at. What are, With your research and experience mm. and ideas, what are the kind of other things that you think are top line kind of, if you had an architect in front of you and you were going to be building a billion dollar health facility tomorrow, <laughs> and they're all being built, I think, um, but if you were, what would they be the kind of top line things that you would be saying, please try and think about this and this and this? Do you have a sense at this point? Yeah, I think that we do, we do have um, some knowledge. So recently, the concept of evidence-based design has been coming to the fore. And, Architects um, and others who are working in this space they either like it or they're not so convinced that it's a great thing. So evidence-based design really is the concept of trying to study how the space influences behaviour or outcomes for people. So, for example, um, I did see in Sweden a fabulous example of a mental health um, facility where they had redesigned completely from an old uh, building and had created a new building that had um, larger rooms for people that had access to outdoor space so that they could see the outdoors uh, that was had a different lighting system which helped 
people feel less stressed, uh, that had better sound control, that it, again, made people feel less stressed. Um, and the consequence of this new design was that uh, the rates of um, medication use, um, violent outbursts, um, assaults on staff, had radically reduced. So in that circumstance, there was probably a very clear link between the old design and this new design. Um, I think, so we've got some insights about some of those things. Uh, what I think we need to do to take it a step further, and I guess I'll talk about the controversy as well around single bedrooms. Um, this is really big. At the moment, we're building um, hospitals where single bedrooms are pushed as absolutely the way to go. And uh, this is based on evidence around um, infection rates and also the assumption that this is what people want. They want their own space. Uh, I think all of us sitting here would go, yeah, if I was sick, I'd probably want my own space. Actually, that isn't true. When you're in that situation, there are, and there are certain groups of people who probably need to be with others, um, even children potentially, uh, but older people and people who have uh, difficulty communicating with others actually feel very stressed when they're in single bedrooms. So although this is put forward as an absolutely A1 thing we should be doing, I question it and I think we need more do you question, research. Do you question it based on evidence, using your own words, or...? Yeah, is there... There, I, at the moment, the evidence that is uh, being um, accumulated is uh, there's been some evidence early on around infection control. Yeah. Um, and there's been some uh, questionnaires of people about whether they like it or not. Uh, in my space, because I'm, I'm interested in the brain, I'm interested in people with brain injury, and there's been nothing in that space at all. And people with brain injury are particularly, uh, I think, vulnerable and sensitive to either being with people or not with people. So I think this is a wide open area for future research and we're trying to do some in that space now. Right. So J Jonathan, you, in a sense, you kind of come from a design background and, and kind of working in this area. Um, the whole, it's quite right to say that there's been enormous resistance to evidence-based design and post-occupancy post um, evaluation of buildings, etc. across the field, across the, you know, all buildings. Why do you think that is that design professionals, I mean, after all, if you're a chef, you want to get feedback from people eating your food, is it good food or not? Or if you're a musician, you get yeah, that straight back immediately. But why is it you think that architects seem to want to uh, uh, quarantine themselves from the actual result of what they build? without staying the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I get the questions that I have to run out the back? Um, but I, I, I think it's, it's not just the architects. I think on one side, there's a lot of issues around um, uh, the commercial sensitivity of, of this information. Um, but you know, on the architect side, I think, you know, we have this real issue around um, awards for buildings. And you know, I get really frustrated when I see, like, why do we give awards to buildings when the doors have just opened and no one has had a chance to experience and use them and we don't ask those people, you know, it's, it's architects are it's making these very decisions good point. as yes. well. Um, so it's very hard when you hand out all of these awards for a building and then you come back retrospectively a year or two years later and do an evaluation and what if you find that actually that building is really crap to, to use on a day-to-day -day basis or be in? Um, so you can, you can see the, 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 the difficulty and why there might be some resistance to, to having this information out and about. And I guess there's also, you know, in terms of private practice, there's commercial sensitivity around, do you really want to share that information? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and developers don't talk to each other at all. Yes, um, so. Ex- except you'd like to think that in health, given that so much of it is the public sector, that that would be a slightly different kind of dynamic. Well, I, I think in, in, in health architecture, it's probably quite different. Mm-hmm. And there's probably a lot more sharing and post-occupancy happening there, <laughs> relative, relatively speaking. So <laughs> if there's something at all happening, there's nothing happening anywhere else. Well, one thing I find interesting is that we're actually working on a book with the VCCC, the Victorian Comprehensive yeah, Cancer Centre, and, um, and, uh, and working with the different tiers of design. And it's, but it's quite interesting, you know, so MCR doing the kind of the wraparound in the public space, and SDH is doing the kind of like the lab stuff, and then Design Inc. is, but it's quite stratified. And it's quite interesting that they've gone to such a investment. The whole central atrium is clearly about bringing natural light down into the lower levels where all the, a lot of the serious act, act, activity happens. You don't feel like you're too subterranean. They're spending lots of money on this kind of process. But somehow, once you go through the swing doors where the beds are, it becomes the kind of their this thing again. So, so even in this situation, it's kind of weird. It's one of the more enlightened design health buildings I can think of, and yet there's still this incredible stratification. That's medical knowledge, where we know how to lay out the machines, and this is human knowledge, where we know how to make people feel better, but never the twain shall meet. It's very bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, Emma, you, um, uh, you just mentioned that you do a lot of work with rodents, and it's always been a kind of a childhood interest of mine as to why mice? <laughs> and, and more than that, uh, what's the actual, um, how reliably can you transfer what you learn with mice to humans, mm-hmm. um, particularly when it comes to like technology. Can you talk through a little bit like the, the work you're doing right now in terms of uh, that transition? Mice are genetically very similar to us, even though they don't look very similar to us. So almost every gene that we have in our DNA, there is an equivalent in a mouse. And they're very, very good at performing memory tasks. So we um, are very lucky to work with them as a... Um, as a research model. And I, you said why mice, a, a personal response is that I, I've worked with mice since I was six years old. So I have Crikey, a particular was that um, legal? thing. <laughs> I, I was making cardboard, maze, cardboard mazes and um, they, they're very close and dear to me. Uh, so the reason that we, that I do the work that I do is that we can introduce genetic changes. So we know that certain disorders and diseases run in families. So Alzheimer's has a family link. Um, something like autism, a disorder that I, I'm, I research, also has a very strong family link. So we can trace the genetic changes in DNA through families, and then we can put the same changes into a mouse. And fascinatingly, we see things in a mouse's behaviour that look a little bit like what we see in patients. So in Alzheimer's, we look for memory changes that are similar to the cognitive decline that we see in patients. So it's one way that we can develop new therapies because at the moment we have very little therapies for brain disorders. So it's it's a, a fantastic research tool and one I care a lot about. Mm-hmm. And um, my work is all around uh, the best way to assess memory in mice and how that relates to disorders like autism and also dementia. I wanted to talk a little bit about technology because mm-hmm. uh, one of the things just that, you, that you're involved in is getting the mice to touch a plate when things happen and then they get a reward and then you can yeah. train them in that sort of sense. We work with mouse iPads. Mouse iPads. I like to call them. Um, so the way that they assess memory in the clinic at the moment, uh, it's turned to tablets. 
So instead of um, the old school card sorting, um, it's so much easier for a clinician to present a tablet and then ask a patient to select a few images and you can program some very complicated memory tasks. So anything from short-term memory to uh, a spatial task to, in to even sort of very um, subtle things like attention and whether you're paying um, particular attention to a, an aspect of the screen. And remarkably, our mice can do the same thing. So we have um, collaborated with some people in Cambridge in the UK and we received our mouse iPads around 2011, 12. So we've only just had them for a little while. And so what our mice do is they race to the front of the screen and they select one image of, over the other because we've selected that the flower is always right for that particular mouse. And then if they get it right, they get a little um, beep to indicate that they've done well. And then they race to the back of the box. It's a triangular shaped box. And then they get a shot of strawberry milkshake. So they work really hard for strawberry milkshake. <laughs> and they're, they're particularly happy with, the, with their progress when they're, when they're doing well. So the reason why we do this is because we feel that we can translate from a mouse to a human and in the sense that our mice are performing the same tasks and when we introduce a genetic variation, one of my colleagues actually has been the first person to show that this is something that has happened um, in the population, so the same genetic mutation in a human and in the mouse and they see the same problem with this iPad-like task. So this is a fantastic way for us to investigate what environments actually affect our mice and what therapies we can um, discover as a result of them. So mm. another aspect of my work is looking at the environment that my mice live in and how beneficial um, these environments can be. Can I ask how you change the environment? Do you yeah. give them more comfortable sofas? Mouse or? playgrounds. <laughs> Mouse playgrounds. No, sofas are the, probably the worst thing that we could give them because we know sedentary lifestyles actually lead to a, a greater chance of developing dementia. That's this right. is where you so all get lectured. That's right. Okay. You should be standing up. So <laughs> mouse sofas, absolutely not. So we give them running wheels, we give them ladders, toys, and each um, amazing spatial construction that we put together changes on a regular basis. So every time that mouse gets placed back into its cage, it's got access to all its friends, always housed in the same cage with its same brothers or sisters. And this mouse has to navigate a new environment. And this is really similar to how you or I, I live. And um, I think that's the most important thing, that we're modelling something that is representative of the human population. And we often see that cases of, say, schizophrenia, um, as an example, people who suffer from these disorders tend to withdraw from society because it becomes a little overwhelming. So we see that even cases of dementia and when you age, people don't have the same um, exposure to the environment that you or I do. It's harder to catch public transport, it's harder to move around. Mm. So um, we may be accidentally modelling a deprived state in our laboratory animals. So our enriched environments are really, really full of colour and full of life for our animals. And what's remarkable is that the animals that have the genetic change that predispose them to developing these memory conditions, they, they look the same when they're housed in these enriched environments. So it's almost as if no matter what kind of genetic deck of cards these animals are dealt with, they still they can perform at the same level as an animal that hasn't had that change. So it's it could be that we're searching for a drug therapy that mimics this, or it could actually be that the, the therapy is in the environment. Yeah. Mm. And the unenriched environment is on your own with not much to do. And I my comparison is... To be in a hospital. That's yes. exactly what it looks like. Well, it does occur to me that there's, there's possibly a kind of a 
the cards are maybe stacked against you a little bit in terms of the management of patients because having just been on a plane for 12 hours, the whole th thing is that they get you dulled, they, they, they close the window, they feed you and you sit there and then you're passive. And I wonder whether there's a kind of conflict between what is going to be your best treatment and what's going to make you most docile and easy to deal no, with. Absolutely. <laughs> and, Probably. And, and the single room is the best way to do that. <laughs> I mean, I'm wondering, because obviously in architecture, in like say offices in the last 10 years, there's been a kind of revolution that they're trying to get rid of the, uh, the elevator, they're trying to put walkways everywhere, all the best places mean you're moving around. And what you've just said is that mm -hmm. if you're moving around and being active, you'll probably have a longer memory life. Um, um, but in your journey around lots of other facilities, was that cutting through or no? Oh, in places like Norway, Sweden, you walk into a, a, a hospital and the main, th the first thing you see is a staircase. Usually it's quite beautiful. So it is a natural uh, avenue for you to walk up. So that you, you take the stairs. Um, in many of our designs, they're buried. You can't find them. You have to ask where the stairs are. Yeah. Uh, so we've designed... For, for purposes around safety and so on, but it's actually really hard to have act, that kind of activity mm -hmm. in our hospitals, yeah. typically. Uh, John, could you talk a little bit about the intersection between this question of well-being and health and uh, environmental sustainability? Because, I mean, one, one likes to think they're both benevolent and they should fit together, but maybe it's possible that you could have an environment that's environmentally unsustainable but is actually quite good for you, or the reverse. So, I don't know, do you think that these two things are necessarily connected? What is an environmentally sustainable outcome and what is going to be better for your welfare? I think they are. Um, one of the biggest issues that we face you know, around the world is that we're rapidly urbanizing and our cities are getting um, are getting denser and you know one of the wonderful things that come from comes with that is um, stimulation cities get get more exciting and more interesting um, but they, they can be over enriching as well um, and to balance that we, we need to have access to, to, to nature and to, to, to green mm -hmm. um, so nature gives us um, that restorative quality um, and you know as we design our cities we need to make sure that that's a factor and that we're, 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 we're building that in. Um, and it's not just in parks. I mean, we need this on the streets as well. Um, and, you know, we, we, we have, um, we can be very proud here in Melbourne about um, the, the work that the city has done and the urban forest um, strategy um, relative to, to other cities around the world. And we had to do something because um, we faced a quite drastic um, situation, the loss of, of trees in the, in, in the city. Um, but that, that relationship is absolutely critical. I, I was watching a, a video by, um, it, it was um, an interview with uh, Anthony Gormley, the, the British um, artist, and he was talking about uh, how London had changed. It was unrecognisable from the London that he grew up in. And he was talking about urbanisation and the changes. And he wasn't negative about it. Um, but he made this comment about how um, the nature of, of people depended on our relationship to nature itself. And, and that it was such a fundamental issue for cities go, going forward. Um, so I think the, the connection is critical. And of course, the more nature and green that we have in our, in our cities, it helps to reduce the, the heat island effect um, and bring down temperatures as well. And that has all these benefits for, uh, for health and well-being. Mm -hmm. So the two, they're inextricably linked. The, the other side to this is that, um, and this kind of, I guess, comes back a little bit to the Semble uh, essay, um, a particular project where a, a, a company um, uh, started producing a kind of a productive landscape 
within its environment and that the people were engaged in this whole process of making stuff. That um, I wonder is there also an aspect to this which is about actually making something, growing something, being involved in new life in some form or other. Mm. I mean, is, is, it, is it too far-fetched to say maybe hospitals and specialist buildings such as this should also be starting to think about how um, people, patients can actually, you know, get their hands dirty and, or whether it's meerkats in the hospital or whether it's plants. Is there something about the kind of like the in, interaction with, as, uh, as Jonathan says, with nature that we could actually look at in our hospitals? Yeah, look, I, I think this is really important and it, and it also harks back to the 80s and what we used to do there. So although the buildings were rather rigid in how they were designed, there was a bit more of an interest in having outdoor spaces and also uh, activities that people could engage in. That was acceptable, certainly when I started um, practice. And now, and then the, with the economics and the cost, they just started ripping out the, the gardens and changing uh, access to these things. And now it's coming back. So in, in light of information that actually came from animals in the enrichment space um, around brain injury uh, and showing that this enrichment can lead to better brain, better outcomes, um, there's some work now happening where we're trying to introduce enrichment into hospitals. So if you, I'd rather start from scratch. That would be ideal, but that costs a lot of money. Uh, but well, what does start from scratch? You mean the well, whole let, building? Yeah, let's right. you know, okay. let's let's aim, let's have a vision and and try and design the best building you possibly can. Um, but we live with the stock we have and the services that we have, and so now there's some efforts going on in Finland and also here in Australia um, with one of my um, associates, where we're trying to introduce enrichment things activities back into hospitals. So you you are trying to help individuals have things that are meaningful for them, that are active, that they can engage in. And then you also want communal spaces where people can engage in things that are meaningful to them and active for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think there is absolutely scope for changing our existing systems to introduce some of those enriching things. And I believe that our research is gonna show that it has benefit that people uh, feel better, there's better outcomes for them, they leave hospital more quickly, and um, three months down the track, they've actually had a better brain recovery. Could you talk a little bit more about precisely the kind of research that you are doing in relation to this, in, in relation to recovery and, and space and architecture? Uh, I've got a number of different um, interests. This is the environmental enrichment part, which is introducing things into existing buildings is one aspect. So that's, as I said, taking, this is our existing lot, let's, try and put things into it mm -hmm. um, and that's uh, got a, a clinical trial that's running across four hospitals um, in New South Wales and Victoria. Um, but the other part of what I'm trying to establish is uh, uh, a centre for neuroscience of architecture, that's the big plan, but also um, research that's looking at, so I have a PhD student at the moment who's interested in the debate around single bedrooms for people with brain injury, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So her work is actually trying to look at um, does single bedroom uh, versus multi-bedroom uh, during your phase of brain recovery, does it change your outcome? And that work's ongoing. And then the other piece of work that we're trying to do is to build the Fable Rehab Hospital. So taking that concept I mentioned at the beginning about having a Fable design for a main, for a main hospital, let's look at where people are typically housed when they've had brain injury, which is rehab, and let's try and design the best possible design for the building. Um, and I'm gonna, 
I guess I'll say that it's not just the building. We talked about what the elements are mm -hmm. that we know about already. It's also the flow. It's, it's how do you create the service that works and how do you create the opportunities for people who've had brain injury to um, do the kinds of things they need to do to recover. And so it's a whole of... It's a really collaborative approach that we need to take. Lots of people in that space working together. Yes, and and, be, and be, by the very nature of those buildings, they are such huge investments. Presumably, it, it will take time because these are all mass, massive capital outlays. Yeah, well, my, my view is you, you have the vision, you try and design the ideal place on paper or on computer as we would do these days, mm -hmm. and you hope um, with your connections and talking to people that someone says, oh, here's one we prepared earlier. Would you like to build that? Mm. Uh, but my starting point, which I was talking to uh, Jonathan about as well, is that uh, we spend a lot of money on our hospitals and to, uh, to have improvements in innovation probably actually won't make them more expensive. They'll just be better. So mm. we should just be aiming higher with um, what we're trying to do, I think. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, do you... Do you um we talked a little bit in, in, with Emma and, and uh, with, around the idea on the use of technology and how technology can help you with what you're doing. And we all know that in uh, urban design and in the design of the city, technology has, whether you want to call it encroached or expanded, um, significantly in the public realm. Do you think uh, you know the sensible city, the, the, the city full of sensors and smartphones beaming back to people, what's happening? Do you think technology has some part to play in? We, you know, obviously trees, parks, nature is very good. Does technology have a part to play? Do you yourself use technology in, in, to inform what you do? We do, and technology definitely has a place. Um, I don't think it's the answer to everything. And um, you know, I, I love the quote from Cedric Price. He said, "Technology is the answer, but what was the question?" <laughs> <laughs> um, that is good. You know, I think you, you, you can ask that. You should ask that at the start of almost every single project. Mm. Um, you know, I think this this idea of the the, the smart city um, is you know is a really absurd idea. Mm. Um, you know, we we have this obsession with control and bringing order to the city. And you know, we tried it through you know we've tried it through everything. We tried it through religion in the medieval ages. We tried to, you know, planning in Baron Houseman in Paris, Le Corbusier with architecture, and Robert Moses with engineering, with, you know, build highways and we bring order to the city. And, and the latest iteration of this seems to be data. You know, the more data we have, the, the easier it'll be to control. Um, the, the, the best um, perspective I've heard on this was from um, a professor from UCL in the UK, um, Mike Batty, who spoke at Melbourne Uni recently, and, and he said, um, you know, the, the, the technology, we need this not, not to control the city or to, to, um, to get ahead. We, we just need it to kind of keep up with the, the, the pace of development and what's happening in our cities. Mm -hmm. It seems a much more reasonable perspective on, um, on technology. Um, but it, it does have a, uh, definitely has a role. We use it in, in different ways. We've been experimenting um, recently with, uh, one of the things that we do is work with designers at concept design st stage. So if you have a scheme, um, and we can work with you, and we can we can tell you how likely your scheme um, is 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 going to work in terms of how people will behave. So there's always an, an intent behind the design, um, but we we can actually work with you and tell you how likely it is that people will behave in that way. And one of the ways that we we're, things we're starting to look at is the use of virtual reality, um, and we're doing that through you know um, we 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 can't afford to have a, a lab to do this. 
And, but we're doing it through Google Glasses. And, and just simple ways, I mean, it's very early days, but just trying to develop an app that you can import a 3D model and then work with the people that are going to actually use that space. Mm -hmm. um, rather than just, you know, there's a lot of assumption that goes into design, which I've, I've worked, you know, for over 17 years with um, architects and engineers and urban designers and landscape architects. And it's kind of scary, the assumption that goes, that goes into um, some decisions that are made. Um, whereas, you know, we can actually test these things and we can design better. Um, what we do, we, we don't um, tell you how to design. We just try and give you better information to make your decisions with. How, how um, what would support that endeavor? I mean, I suppose in, in, in all your cases, like what, if we were to be gathering here in five years' time, you know, what would be the ingredients that would make hospitals more enlightened to their internal environment and their relationship, the, the, the work you do, the, the client and your collaborators more receptive. What are the things that we need to put in place for these you know, very laudable design <clears throat> ambitions to bear fruit? Or conversely, what are the things that may actually be blocks to those things happening? Um, there's lots of issues, I think, within um, you know, all of the different uh, design professions. That, you know, for one, professional bodies are probably an issue. <laughs> we have different professional bodies for different, you know, different professions. So, of course, you know, if you've an architectural um, institute, they're, they're going to support architecture and, you know, propose architecture or engineering, whatever it might be, to be the, the kind of leader in the field. But what we need is, is we have to get rid of this idea of multidisciplinary because it's, all multidisciplinary means is bringing different professions to a, an issue. It doesn't mean working together. You know, we really need to start a more interdisciplinary practice. If I, if I could make one change in the whole process, it would be to have behavioral science as a fundamental component of that interdisciplinary team. And when I say behavioral science, I mean that in terms of um, psychologists, um, neuroscientists, um, sociologists, anthropologists, I mean it quite broadly. Um, you know, how can we be designing cities and human habitats and not be looking at those areas, not have the input of, of that, um, that's those, the skills and the knowledge in, in, in those areas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of ludicrous. If you think about Emma and Jay, you're, you're both nodding furiously uh, mm. uh, with that. Um, what is the, uh, is it likely that in a field of medicine that, um, uh, as Jonathan says, is not so much a question of just multidisciplinary, but actually a more trans or, or you know, collaborative environment, mm. is that something that's on the spectrum for for the health environments? I think we're, we're working like that, or we're trying to, in medical research. And we're, as we see the success of interdisciplinary work, we keep extending further and further. Um, we had a fantastic scientist who may get a Nobel Prize, he's that good, come and visit the Florian, give a Kenneth Meyer lecture, Carl Dazeroth. And so he has lit, lit up the brain, literally. He's d designed a new technique to light up when neurons fire. Um, and this is a really amazing discovery, but one of the things he said in response to a question from the audience, like, how, how did you do this? I mean, what, what was the, your ingredients to success? And he said, uncomfortable conversations. So putting a lot of people in the room that come from different disciplines mm -hmm. means that it will get uncomfortable. And a lot of people freak out and then run away from that because no one really wants to be uncomfortable. But from these uncomfortable conversations, Carl developed new techniques and new research that, that is so groundbreaking. It's changed the way that we, we do the work that we do. So I think that 
I, I agree. I was nodding because I, mm. I think we need to have more uncomfortable conversations. We need to put mm. very different people in the room so we could create brand new things because we keep doing the same thing over and over again. And to answer your, your question about um, what ingredient would mm -hmm. we have, I, I think opportunities for movement. Movement. A lot of people are wearing Fitbits and are calculating their steps and I think you can get a bit, there's a bit of overkill in, in measuring all the things you do in every day, but I think step counting is a good one. If you can reach 10,000 steps per day, it means you've had a fairly active day and that means that your body will be healthy but your brain, which is also like a muscle, uh, grows and, and, and is healthy as well. So m opportunities for movement would be my key ingredient. And I would say I agree completely with the interdisciplinary because that's how we create really great science. But I'm a researcher, so I'm going to say really good research, um, <laughs> which means that we need to find mechanisms for funding because there are partners out there. You know, I work with architects and designers and wayfinders and we want to do this kind of work together. There is um, interest in doing it. And there's no real logical place where you can go to try and find the funding. Um, so that's a bit of a challenge, I think, in the area. We, we really, uh, we're sort of trying to carve out where we might go to get money to help do the work. Um, but the other thing is the transparency issue, which Jonathan mm -hmm. mentioned before and you asked a question around. Um, Certainly some of the architects that I work with uh, really acknowledge that the fact that when, we, when buildings are finished and there's um, research that's done on them, the fact that it's not shared, that if there, it is done, it's buried under the, under the banner of commercial inconfidence uh, is holding us back. Because if we don't know what's good, really good, and what doesn't work, how can we actually use that? It's sort of a waste. It's such a waste and I think we need to, I don't know how we overcome that, um, Jonathan suggested that we need to, it needs to be mandated that these become public. Um, <laughs> that might put the cat amongst the pigeons, uh, but there's something that we need to shift. So I, I think yeah. those uh, additional things are really critical to making gains. And probably the one thing that I discovered in doing multiple interviews with people involved in the VCCC was that what they all said was, yes, the building's important, yes, it's good to have natural light, yada, yada, but actually it's as much if not more about the exchange between many different organisations, one doing genomics, one doing DNA, one doing this radiology, and how they all work together, and I've been quite surprised at how actually, at least to me, they're saying that they are really fully sharing their information, which is... We have to. In science, we have to work collaboratively. There is very few examples of one discipline mm. working on their own to create innovation. It just doesn't happen. It, it is, I mean, I can't think of an example. Um, in, so in science, we have to work interdisciplinary. That's where you get the discoveries and that's what's exciting. And we mm. want to do the same in this space too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, look, we've got about uh, 10 or 15 minutes left in the session here. And um, uh, I, I know that uh, the organizers are very keen for a bit of conversation. So um, at this point, I was going to put it out to you out there if you've got any questions of the panel. Um, and we have a roving mic over there. I might even like suggest as a provocation, we've all been in some time in our lives in hospitals or care situations and have either experienced wonderful or really not wonderful environments. I don't know if anyone's got any experiences they want to share as to what for them represents uh, a design quality in, in a recovery or health environment. Question over there. Um, well, this is not in relation to your no. provocation. Yeah, yeah. 
I just wanted to bring up the point that there's an assumption going on in discussion that architecture is an autonomous discipline, that it's a sort of creative work done by a single person, the architect. And I just want to open up the discussion a little bit more that actually a building is not autonomous. There's a whole bunch of factors that go into designing and producing a building. And often once the keys are handed over, it's out of the architect's hands. And a lot has to do with how a building is run and managed by the people that use it. So I want to sort of open up the conversation around that a little bit more. And then I want to take away the idea of the architect as a single person because no single person ever is involved in the design and production of a building. So any response on oh, that? absolutely. On the Completely agree Thanks. with you. Absolutely. Yeah. It is, um, as we know, these are huge and complex um, pieces of building. And, uh, yeah, it's not one, not one architect or one group. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the same. I, I think sometimes we have these discussions that it... Um, gets very simplified um, mm. and you know, it's not just the architect's fault and they're really good architects and some really interesting stuff um, happening in, um, in Denmark at the moment. Um, for example, um, 3XN, um, Architectural Practice have started a research arm um, called GXN and they have behavioural scientists working um, as, as part of that research group. Um, and there's also there's a, another practice in the, in the US called uh, PIET, I think. Um, who also have environmental psychologists as part of their um, part of their team, so th there is some, there is some good practice happening um, as well. Um, but look, it's you know I think it it doesn't take away from the issue that you know you know buildings open, get awards, and actually you talk to the people that use them, and they're not so wonderful. Um, and it's not always very um, you know big issues. Um, it's kind of it's just the day-to-day -day use of those buildings. Um, there's one here in particular. I'm, I'm not going to point it ah. out, but um, you know, <laughs> it, it, you know. <laughs> Maybe. Um, no cackling. A, a really simple. A really simple. You know, it, it's all about what we do is all about the congruence between human psychology and and the design. And look, you know, we develop mental models about how buildings work, about how the urban environment works, and. You know, when you go into a building and you go to a function on the top floor and you're coming back down, most of us expect the ground floor to be one or, 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 or G, not, not, not three. So when you hit one and end up three floors below the ground, that's, you know, that seems like a really kind of innocuous and mundane kind of issue, but that kind of stuff pisses people off, you know? Um, and that's a very simple, there's a lot more, we could go a lot further and a lot deeper, but... Um, I'll save you but, from that, John. But I'll add, I'll add as well that I think that some of the um, some of the problem or some of the challenge in some of these design spaces, especially hospitals, is often that there's a very short timeline around how um, things might have to get built, and um, that makes the consultation process really challenging for the design team, and and it also means that they have to work with um, people who don't really understand design. So uh, the design team are working with health practitioners who don't actually really understand what uh, they're trying to get to. So this co-design practice of how we're trying to work together to create a great space um, can be deeply challenging, I think, for everybody. And um, uh, if we had more time 
sometimes that would be the solution um, mm -hmm. if we had more um, uh, to be able to have a really robust process and also to educate you know people so that they mm. understood what you're trying to get to mm. to create um, the other thing I think that's uh, challenging for the designers is that often um, health practitioners who are consulted um, aren't, they're thinking about how they currently practice, not thinking about how they might want to innovate or what might be possible within an innovation. And uh, that also means that they give advice to the design team, which is to do the same thing as what was done before. So I don't, I, I think it's it's really complex um, to get it right. And I'm, I think it's about um, everybody trying to get on the same page, but there are factors that are hard to shift. For sure, for sure. And uh, for my, as, as a kind of a rejoinder to that as well, uh, there is an enormous contradiction um, uh, currently uh, in relation to one idea about inter interdisciplinary transdisciplinary you know, activity and everybody loves it. Everyone, nobody says, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do any transdisciplinary. Everyone loves it in theory, but actually in, in practice, um, uh, when it comes to delivering large capital work pro projects, there's actually an ingrained attitude towards reducing the number of people you can go to to get advice about things. So for instance, in health design, there's possibly six practices in this entire country that would be asked to, de to design the health part of a billion dollar building. Mm. So that it's not only, at that point, it's not only just a question of whether you're just an, uh, an architect, but within that, there's a subset which is smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, this, we are in this environment where capital works are requiring all sorts of capability requirements that is narrowing it even more than it has been for the last, you know, generation. Sorry, over there. Do we have a mic? Oh, oh, this, oh, oh this sorry. One. Oh, sorry. We'll, we'll just go to that question first and then go on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to derail what we're talking about. Um, I was going to ask about how do, you, how do you get your research to the government level and knowing that um, I know there have been, there's been more use of health practitioners and health knowledge with the Planning Institute and their collaborations going on there and then their lobbying government. I'm just wondering what your experience is of this and whether um, seems like there's uh, frag a fragmented approach and that's really, I know researchers are, are stuck for time anyway, but who needs to lobby on your behalf to get that to government and side shoot to that Malcolm Turnbull and this idea of a minister for cities is that going to help once he actually appoints a team and gives them something to do? Mm. It'll help the latter them, bit, sure. I'm not sure. Do you think that'll make a difference, Jonathan? <laughs> the Minister for Cities? It's very encouraging, considering what, you know, what we've come from, um, his predecessor, um, some utter depression to at least you know, saying the right things. Um, I, I think it's, you know, it was the recent announcement of the one, $1 billion for innovation was quite interesting and you know, I think why isn't that money just going to re to the research in, in universities? I mean, you know, we, we talk about, you know, what, what Australia has to offer the world. And on one hand, it just seems, you, you, you'd think it was all about just coal. But <laughs> the innovations that have, that have come out of Australia in, um, from research and in, in, in health and medicine have been, you know, really astounding. And we just don't, we don't recognise it or give it enough, um, um, uh, put enough value on it. And I think it's, you know, you see it in terms of in private practice. We don't do enough research R&D in private practice across the board. And, you know, we're not, we should be putting more money into, into universities as well. What do you think you need to have the open ear of the government? Well, I think uh, there's, a, there's a couple of issues here, aren't there? Uh, um, 
you're right. I mean, it is actually quite challenging, I, I find, to get... So we run op an optimising health environment forum. I've only run two. There's another one coming up in February. Um, and we invite um, people from government to come because we're talking about stuff that they spend a lot of money on and they don't really... They're not really that interested. Um, the other thing is that I hear from uh, my colleagues who are in the design and architect space that when they do have uh, buildings that they're asked to that are commissioned for hospitals um, and they ask about getting money for research, the government says, oh, no, I don't think so. We don't want to give you any extra money for research. So I think there is, at the moment, it not a, a, there's a disconnect between um, those two things. Um, I don't really have a solution. I, I would like to think that if we could do stuff um, that we could get funding from another source and show that we could do something really innovative, they might finally go, oh, that's interesting. Uh, but look, I think it's just pers it's personal relationships at this point. I, I don't have a solution about that. I'd love if someone else has one, uh, a suggestion, that'd be great. And you're right about scientists not having very much time, but I don't think many of us do, but we do speak loudly and we're trying to speak as loudly as we can. But something else that, that all of you can do here is actually learn a little bit about um, what's going on in your local institutes and speak for us too, because we all vote. And I think the politicians are making a lot of decisions about where the money is coming from. And absolutely, we can look in the private sector, but government money is very powerful. It's powerful for those discoveries that don't directly translate to some big wow treatment. And it's those discoveries, or oh, sorry, those discoveries that actually take a little bit of time, but eventually might actually be that big wow treatment. But we do need government support for that basic research before it gets into the clinic. So um, speak loudly and, and call your local MP because <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very important. And we did get some of that billion. Like women in science got 13 million, which is very exciting, so. Just to kind of follow mm. up to that question before we go to the, um, uh, you know, again, different different health um, providers have different kind of ideas of what their benchmark of where they want to get to. And I know that, for instance, with the VCCC, it's a percentage of survival. Like they want to get from there to there. In a sense, that's a really strong story to mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. to get a billion dollars. What would be equivalent in terms of neuroscience? Is like if you give us this research, we're going to get to here. Do you, do you have a formation for that? It depends on your area. Um, so if you were talking about Alzheimer's disease, then you would want to, uh, we're at the moment looking at slowing the progression of Alzheimer's um, uh, and you would like more people to have long, healthy life um, uh, and prevent the brain disease from happening in the first place. That's actually, that's a, real, that's a bit of a long-term yeah. view. Uh, although I met someone the other night who said, we'll solve Alzheimer's in five years. You see, those are the numbers you need for yeah. the government guy to pick up. Oh, really? And then he, five years? And, and then he said, almost within a term. I know. And then he said, but I've been saying that for 20 years, <laughs> which was actually a little bit depressing. Um, but in, you know, in my area, which is brain injury, it's about um, people recovering really well. So having good outcome, good quality of life after you've had brain injury. And we can quantify that. And of course, we're, as researchers, we like to quantify everything. Yes. We have to work to those goals. But... I agree. It's, cancer's a very, um, it's a very easy sell because mm. it's something that scares us and it's also something that, that when you think about not dying, that's yeah. a really great sell. Um, in our area, which is brain, it's more about 
um, prevention, but also about sort of slowing of disease and... And also and working with disorders that don't get a lot of media coverage. Yeah, Mental completely. illness really doesn't get very much coverage. So um, it often is a, a bit of a taboo. So areas mm. like schizophrenia get very little funding because mm. we, we're scared and we don't get to see um, a positive side of living with a mental yeah. illness very often in, in films and in our media. And same with addiction, <laughs> which is one of our other areas. So that's another area where they don't... There's not a great lot of funding. People don't get too excited. Government, certainly, mm. although they've just done the ICE announcement. But apart from that... Yes. It is, it is interesting, that taboo side of mm. mental yeah. health. Yeah. So, question over here. Yeah. Um, oh, it is on. Um, so, I guess a lot of what you've been talking about, um, there was a recent research project I was working on with one of the hospitals where we were designing an innovation laboratory where clinicians and scientists from different areas were meant to come into a space to work on a particular project. And actually having sat in on a lot of the meetings, so my role was to do the research that goes before the architect gets the brief. Um, a lot of it was about intellectual property, <laughs> lots of meetings with lots of lawyers, but also, yeah, what happens to that information? And so whether the research that goes behind these spaces does become something that's quite public and doesn't become hidden away with sort of commercial confidence afterwards. So that there is sort of this expectation that when someone designs something that the evidence is there, but not only just evidence as in this particular trial, but how that then gets transferred to an architectural brief and the expectation also of the client and the project manager at the end of the day so that um, there is expectation that at the end of it, it will mean something and it's not just, well, we've got X number of beds, we've got X number of this, we've got X number of that and it's this colour. Um, but also, yeah, the way that we educate our students in design as well also has um, an influence on that as well. Yeah. So, yeah, there's lots of... yeah. If we could just get there, right? If we could exactly. just get that to happen, it would make such a big difference. Yeah. So in Sweden, um, every every um, building that is built with public money is um, the design and the brief is publicly accessible. So it's not you. You can just go and turn up and look it up. It's there, yeah. um, and and that's amazing because one of the big challenges um, for me uh, as someone who's really interested in sort of moving into this space is to find out where the good stuff is and even it's actually really hard to to um even if you read heard the and on and know about the journals it's really hard there's no central repository mm -hmm. of like excellent mm -hmm. buildings from around the world there's pockets of it but and that makes, it re that makes it really difficult. You sort of have to ask questions. So everywhere I go, I'm going, can you give me a good example of something that you think is fabulous? That's because how else do I find out? We need an open source version. We do need an open source, yeah. One last question, I think, before we wrap up. Hi, um, this question is for Julie. Um, so as somebody who's working in aged and specialty care, um, some of your comments really resonated with me, especially the ones regarding um, the conservative healthcare client. Um, do you have any suggestions on how to best communicate with such clients? Um, just because um, they are used to sort of, um, they say that they work by principle, but they really do like to work by precedent. And so it's very, very difficult to innovate, especially if they're trying to do something that they've never done before. Um, yeah, thanks. I, it, that's, a, that's, again, a fantastic question. Um, you need, obviously you need leadership, which is the challenge sometimes, right? So. Um, 
a great example of a group who wanted to just start again and think of things fresh was uh, with the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Centre with some of their areas. They really took a consumer perspective and maybe that's partly what can be done. Um, making sure that when we're talking about person-centred care, which people throw around a lot, that we actually really ask people who are affected in that space what they think, uh, because that's very challenging for the clinicians. Uh, we don't actually like to ask people what they think. We'd rather just know what we think is best for them. Um, but if you can ask people uh, and have more of a, encourage a consultative approach where people uh, who are affected by that space are consulted, that can sometimes lead to innovation. Because you can say, I really hated that waiting area and I really hated this bit um, and we'd like you to change it. Uh, and, but otherwise, it's so dependent on the health practitioners that you're engaged with. They'll either be battling for space because they want extra room in their building or they just are not interested in trying to change the way they deliver care. Um, so I, that's why I sort of think um, you have to start with a, well, I, that's why I'm keen to do the, let's start with a fresh plate and get the people who really do want to do that and create. I know it's an ideal kind of world, but I actually think that would be helpful. Very good. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, oh, Emma, did you have a point? Can I ask a question? It's something that related to your level three being the ground floor. Is that necessarily always a bad thing? Do we want to design buildings that help us remain on autopilot? Or do we want to design spaces that stimulate? And, and this comes from a, a house that I saw in Japan. So a Japanese architect, or maybe architects, I'm not sure, but they designed a series of houses called reversible destiny houses. And the idea is that if you live in these houses, instead of going on a retreat for the brain, and relaxing and, and chilling in a spa, you actually need to work really hard to survive in these houses. They have sloped floors, they have um, different splashed <laughs> colours all over the place. In fact, I think the light switches operate lights in different rooms, so you have to remember which one is the bathroom. And and I wonder, I mean, this might not necessarily be compatible with healthcare because we have a lot of... No, or with students. No, or with students. <laughs> but from, from the general sort of sense of how do we best live in our environments. I mean, what do you think about that concept? And and should we be exploring spaces that we engage with in a more active basis? Like there's some bells down in Docklands that you can play and these sorts of things, is that? Um, yes and no. <laughs> Look, if, if I relate, so my, my, my area is public space. So mm. That's what I'm most, most interested in, what I work most in. Um, and, you know, the, the Different cultures use public space in different ways and interpret it in very different ways. Um, in, in, um, in, I'm going to simplify things. Like there's, there's broadly two kind of cultures. One is low context, which is very Western culture. So that's where we need um, everything to be really explicit. So that's why you get environments where um, every, you know, there's, everything has a sign, there's a rule and a regulation mm -hmm. for everything. Um, you know, we, we tell you exactly where to cross and how to cross. and you know, like for example, there's a rule here in, in, in Victoria, you have to cross at a, at a cross a street in a straight line, you can't, if you can't deviate on, a, on an angle. Um, you know, down to that kind of ridiculous degree of, of regulation and behavioral determinism. Um, we can enrich our environments and make them more stimulating by actually just take that nonsense away. And, and that's what the other kind of culture do. So um, like Asia, Middle East, um, Africa, South America, Mediterranean, are what we call high context cultures. 
um, where they rely, uh, behavior is more implicit or behavioral expectations, and they rely a lot more on um, interaction and negotiation. And when you do that, then um, how people behave in public space is actually, it's negotiated, it's bottom up. And because it's bottom up, it's um, more likely to stick and, and be adhered to. The top down, there's a, a conflict between, you know, we, we all have this innate need for control over our destiny or a sense of it. And then we have this kind of top down control imposed upon us. And it, it's why we get lots of issues arise. For I don't, I don't know if you heard about this issue about which side of the, um, the footpath we should walk on in Melbourne. You know, it's a ridiculous notion and, and people try and associate it with the side of the road that we drive on. There's no association whatsoever. Um, so in the, in the UK, most people walk on the right-hand side. In fact, most people walk on the right-hand side in the world, um, not on the left. Um, but we try and impose this idea. And you've probably seen the, the, the walking lanes idea. Let's, let's turn the footpath into a street and we put a white line down the middle and people walk here and people walk there. So what do you think? Are we actually making it... Oh, is this our environment sort of dumbing down our brains? Is this, well, is this too easy for us to navigate? Absolutely. Mm. So if you think about, you know, we, we have an innate um, need, uh, a sense of control over our lives. When we have these very regulated environments, what we're doing is we're telling you exactly how to behave every step of the way. And when, when we do, when you do that, people um, have a sense of a loss of control. And when you have a sense of a loss of control, what we do is revert back to basic survival instincts, which has become defensive and... Mm. That's where we get conflict. And the other thing that we're wonderful at doing is we're not great at following rules, but we're very, very good at observing other people not following them. Um, and, and some people are really good at calling council to complain that people aren't doing what they should do. And then what do councils do? We create more rules and more regulation. And, and, and the problem gets confounded. A rule-breaking Irishman, Craigie. <laughs> 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 uh, on that point, uh, I think we will uh, call the session to a close. And I'd like to thank uh, M Pavilion and mm. Assemble for thank organizing you. this evening. I'd like to thank you all for coming and staying and being so attentive. And I'd like to thank our three speakers for being such wonderful speakers. Please join me in thanking them. Thank